started. Welcome everybody. Welcome Professor Philip Lutgendorf. Uh, it's a great pleasure to host Professor Philip Lutgendorf today for the fifth webinar in the series on index studies that we started at Fame University last February, that is February 2021. It is my distinct honor and pleasure to welcome Professor Lutgendorf, who was my professor at the University of Iowa where I did my PhD from 2004 to 2008. I never took his classes, but I consider myself as one of the eclavias who, without directly learning from him, I read his articles, I read his books, and that gave me new insights to my childhood passion. All of us, us, us are passionate and fascinated about, about Indian films, Hindi films, Bollywood now called as. Professor Lutkendorf uh, has published series of articles on this fascinating topic, which is you know, close to our heart, became close to my mind also. Uh, let me briefly read his bio without, you know, going <laughs> endlessly about my fascination with his articles. Uh, so, uh, Professor Lutgendorf uh, is uh, just re retired from the University of Iowa, uh, where he was for several decades. He taught uh, Hindi language at, in, at all levels. He was also uh, Professor of Modern Indian Studies the Department of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures for 33 years until his retirement in 2018, as I said. His book on the performance of the Hindi Ramayana, The Life of a Text by University of California, uh, 1991, won the A.K. Kumar Swami Prize for the Association for Asian Studies. He received a Guggenheim Fellowship, an extremely prestigious fellowship in, in the U.S. in 2002 to in 2003 three, for his research on the popular Hindu so-called monkey god Hanuman, which appeared as Hanuman's Tale, The Messages of a Divine Monkey. That book was published by Oxford University Press in 2007. His interests include epic performance, traditions, folklore, and popular culture and mass media. He maintains a website devoted to Hindi cinema, aka Bollywood, at the University of Iowa.uiowa.edu slash Indian Cinema. Four volumes of his new seven-volume translations of the 16th century Ramcharit Manas of Tulsidas for the Murthy Classical Library of India have appeared as the Epic of Ram by Harvard University Press 2016 and 18. His research on the cultural history of Chai in South Asia began in 2010 with a Fulbright Senior Fellowship. He has served as president, president of the American Institute of Indian Studies from 2010 to 2018 and currently chairs its board of trustees. Welcome Professor Philip, Professor Lutkendorf and what whom we call as Philipsy, our own Philipsy. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'm uh, trying to share my screen here. Is it? Is that yes. working? Yes. Okay. And you can see the uh, the yes. title slide. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much, Professor Jane. And I'm having my morning chai even as I uh, do this lecture. Um, I'm going to start out. I'm going to start out with a little bit of ancient history, which um, about myself which will uh, recapitulate some of what Professor Jane very generously said. Um, most of my scholarship has been on popular storytelling traditions uh, of the subcontinent, especially Ramayana, uh, its characters, themes, and folk performance genres. And I've been engaged for over a decade now in uh, this, this seven volume translation of the Tulsidas uh, Ramayana, of which actually five volumes are out and the sixth is about to come out. And I just sent off the text for the seventh last week. So it's, um, it's nearing an end. 
Um, but of course, what I'm talking about today comes from a very different area of interest. In the late 1990s, I started watching a lot of Hindi films for the first time. Um, and um, it was partly sparked by the interest of my language students at the University of Iowa. They, they were interested in cinema and I felt I should know more about it. And as I watched, and it was also partly inspired by the availability of better quality um, uh, prints of films that were coming out on DVD at that time. And of course I was uh, astonished by the breadth and the creativity of popular cinema in India. And I started appreciating some of the masterpieces of, of mainstream cinema, great stars, directors, uh, musicians. And I was shocked by its absence from the film studies curriculum in universities all over the world, uh, in the United States, of course, but even in India, there simply wasn't a serious scholarship on popular cinema. Um, typically in the United States in those days, in the 1990s, um, there would be a world cinema course uh, in a film studies department. And India would be, if it was represented at all, India would be represented by one film. And it was almost always this film, Potter Panchali by Shachajit Ray, um, a great Bengali director. Uh, and a film that won a bunch of international awards in the 1950s, um, but not a representative film in any sense, a film heavily influenced by Italian neorealism, uh, an art film um, without songs, <laughs> and um, a film that was not popular in India, and it wasn't even popular in West Bengal. You know, so, um, but that would be the token Indian film. And then the professor might mention, oh yeah, I understand they also make a lot of musicals. Um, and, you know, Americans had a vague idea of what a musical was, um, but they didn't know any more than that. So around this time, I teamed up with a, a film studies colleague to offer a course that I think was probably the first course in any major university survey course on the history uh, of popular Hindi cinema, one semester, a semester long course. Um, and it's also around this time that I started creating, uh, also with my colleague, uh, Professor Corey Creekmore, started creating the website that um, Professor Jane referred to, um, which eventually grew to its current size, which I think is around 110 notes on about 110 um, films. And um, I, I really created the website because um, for the benefit of other educators um, who might want to introduce uh, information about popular Hindi cinema into their curriculum, and many did, and many have used it, I, I'm gratified to, to know. Um, and um, it was also because at that time there was virtually no serious uh, critical material on the internet about Hindi cinema. There was a lot of fan stuff, but there, there wasn't really a, a kind of a serious, uh, you know, critical study of films. So I was trying to contribute to that. If, if, you, if any of you take a look at um, the website, you'll notice that the entries stop about seven or eight years ago. I haven't been adding to it. 
And therefore, particularly for any students who are watching, um, probably some of the films that you know best and what maybe like best are not there. And I, um, you know, really want to say that um, I'll talk later in the talk about the, the great complexity of the media landscape today in India, which is one of the reasons why I haven't been writing very much on it. But I think other people definitely should. And I, I hope that maybe even some of the people in this audience today will um, take up the challenge and become film study scholars and, and create uh, good new studies of recent films. Um, now, my title comes from a not terribly well-known film, a 1971 film directed by Raj Kapoor. Um, but I chose it um, partly because of, of what I'm talking about, um, but also because um, the, the, this film brings up a number of interesting points about Indian cinema. Um, the title of the film is itself a kind of clever play on the title of an Italian film from uh, 1963 that became quite well known internationally. So, so for film buffs, and the Kapoors were certainly film buffs, it was, a, it was a kind of clever reference to the Italian film title. Now, some of the English language critics in India immediately labeled it as a remake uh, of the Italian film, which is absolutely ridiculous. It has no, uh, apart from the borrowing of the idea of the title, it has absolutely no connection with the Italian film. It's about three generations of men in an in a extended family. And um, since the three generations of men are played by three generations of Kapoor men from a single family, it also makes reference to their actual lives and therefore is a kind of clever inter intertextual um, reference to other films that the Kapoors have made and acted in, which is very typical of Hindi cinema. A great deal of intertextuality as, as I'll say more about later. Um, and of course, it also plays on the fact that in Hindi and a number of other Indian languages, the word for yesterday and tomorrow are the same, uh, unlike in Italian or English. And um, therefore, um, you know, is a kind of an allusion to the cyclical nature of time, you might say, uh, that is so predominant in uh, the, the rel religious traditions of the, of the subcontinent. Um, You'll notice that I haven't used the word Bollywood except in my title, and I, I will avoid it um, because I personally don't like it. it. It originated in the 1970s as a kind of dismissive term in English language uh, journalism in India. Um, it was initially very much resented by people within the industry, and it, film scholars are still quite uncomfortable with it. It's used very inaccurately in the West to apply to all Indian films, including Sachajit Ray, <laughs> who is not Bollywood, and, and film industries in languages other than Hindi, and even international art films like Monsoon Wedding by you know, Mira Nair and people like that. Um, and of course, the worst thing about it is that it suggests that somehow the real center of international cinema is located someplace else. 
and the the Bombay the Mumbai um, film industry is a kind of secondhand derivative uh, phenomenon. Um, so for that reason, I don't like it. But on the other hand, it's become um, a kind of an international name brand recognition. Uh, and so now even people within the industry generally are forced to use it and, and we can't really avoid it. So here we are talking about Bollywood despite my misgivings. Um, now, insofar as uh, Western viewers know anything about Bollywood, they associate it with glamor and spectacle, uh, romance and star power, and um, long films punctuated by song and dance sequences, which in American um, genre is, is a musical, although there has never existed any such genre in Indian cinema. Um, of course, all this is true to some extent, but it's hardly the whole story. Um, back in 2006, I published an article um, uh, in which I argued for not just the great variety and diversity of popular Indian films, but also for their displaying distinct um, stylistic conventions that represent uh, Indian cultural and aesthetic categories. Um, including the importance of the gaze, the, recip the reciprocal gaze that we see coded in the Hindi word darshan and Persian uh, nazar, um, both associated not only with love and emotion, but also with religious experience, with seeing and being seen by gods and powerful or, or holy persons. Um, this leads to the importance of eyes and eye contact in classical performance traditions and popular religious art with its great emphasis on frontal display uh, of deities looking, you know, looking us directly in the eyes. Um, but it also leads in films to conventions of seeing, uh, conventions of love at first sight, which certainly abound in popular cinema and the site is usually close up and extended. And such vision also nurtures uh, an audience desire for, for uh, interaction and contact with popular stars. Um, now to backtrack a little bit, the technologies um, of photography and film both came to India very soon after their invention in Europe. And they were enthusiastically adopted and adapted by, by uh, Indians. Um, and it's important to note that the first films were screened in Bombay only nine months after they were first shown in France by the Lumiere brothers. Uh, very little time lag. Among the early enthusiasts for cinema was the photographer and magician of Pune, uh, D.G. Palke, who um, saw a film um, in about 1911, uh, an Italian film, uh, a silent film, of course, as all films were then, but based on the life of Christ. And he was powerfully affected by it and wrote in his diary, as you can see, that while the film was rolling fast before my physical eyes, I was mentally visualizing the gods, that is our gods, uh, Krishna, Ramachandra, I was gripped by a strange spell. I bought another ticket and saw the film again. 
This time I felt my imagination taking shape on the screen. And then we get this very gendered language here. Could we, the sons of India, ever be able to see Indian images, but also a nationalistic uh, implication here on the screen? Palke set out to do that. He got equipment and got trained and got some financial backing. And in 1913, he released what is generally regarded as the first uh, feature length film, uh, Raja Harishchandra, based on a, an episode in, um, found in both epics, actually, in, in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Um, and it was quite uh, successful and acclaimed. Um, and created the genre that we refer to today as mythologicals, um, which were especially popular in the silent era, teaching uh, audiences the new technology through stories that were already familiar to them. Um, and it's interesting that this trend continued with later technologies, um, such as television, which was partially popularized in India by the Ramayan TV serial, um, in 1987 to 89, which I've written about. Um, and also um, animated films. Um, the first feature length animated film was also a quote unquote mythological Hanuman in 2005. So, so each time a new technology or a new uh, genre of film has been introduced, uh, mythological themes have helped uh, people to get into it. Um, of course, one of the most important events for Indian cinema was the advent of sound in 1931. Um, and um, that, uh, you know, created a real love for musical uh, sort of operatic cinema, um, uh, following on a number of popular performance forms, like in Marathi Tamasha and uh, in Hindi Notanki and other, other genres. Um, and um, follow after uh, Alam Ara, which was the first um, uh, sound film, um, there was really, uh, there was a great emphasis on music in films. In 1932, uh, Indar Sabha was a 211 minute film that had 72 songs in it. And it was basically an opera. Um, but um, very quickly, the mythological uh, genre gave way to other genres um, that began to be made um, with, with sound. Uh, the historical, the stunt film, interesting, interestingly, one of the first superstars in Hindi cinema was a, a woman of Australian background, uh, Mary Evans, who played the character Fearless Nadia in a whole series of very popular films in the 1930s. Um, crime dramas, and of course the, the sort of omnibus category of the social, which is applied to uh, an enormous range of films. Um, but of course you'll notice that there's no musical because there, there was no such thing. All of these films had music in them and most had dance as well. Um, in, in, I'm gonna go through um, a couple of tense, uh, text dense slides here, just to show you some of what I consider some of the distinctive conventions of popular cinema in India and the Hindi cinema that we're talking about today. Um, so the first is what I call technical and performance conventions. 
um, lack of concern with so-called realism and the so-called invisible style, which is typical of Hollywood. Um, you know, one of the cardinal rules of Hollywood cinema that, that actors learn is don't look at the camera. Um, but in Hindi cinema, that's violated all the time because we want to have darshan. And, uh, you know, the look is very important. Um, of course, the use of music and song and often very fine poetry by well-known poets and dance uh, for advancing the plot or developing character. And of course, the, um, the convention, which came in very quickly in the sound era of playback singing, that is to say, the actors don't actually sing. Um, they they uh, lip sync the songs and famous singers who, who are well known outside of the cinema do the um, singing for them. And of course, film music has a very powerful life in popular culture, quite apart from the films that, that uh, the songs are created for. Um, narrative conventions, um, a preference, uh, as we find in, in traditional theater in India, for multiple moods, what you could call separate story tracks, so that often uh, American viewers, when they watch a Hindi film for the first time, they say, well, what is it? Is it, is it action adventure? Is it romance? Is it comedy? What, you know, what, there seems to be everything going on, right? Well, yeah, because there is, it's a multi-course uh, banquet of flavors, of rasas. Um, this leads to films that are quite long and that don't have a kind of Aristotelian linear storyline, again, that, that Western film uh, goers are most, most familiar with. Um, in addition, there's often a star text, which is to say references to other films uh, in which the, the major stars have appeared um, and, and a kind of a persona that the stars have created through multiple films and which the audience knows about. And this too feeds into the, the notion of intertextuality, the fact that the films, um, this is a very cinephilic cinema. That is to say, it assumes audiences that are very knowledgeable about other films. And so there are often references to other films uh, and other songs, other actors. Think of how many films have um, lines from film songs in their titles, like Dilwale Dulhaniya Lejaenge, for example, which is a line from an earlier film song. Um, and then some thematic conventions, of course, this very strong notion of dosti, friendship, um, a very strong element of nationalism, but also the critique of nationalism in sometimes subtle or not so subtle ways, a very powerful bond between ma and beta uh, in the films. Um, as well as other um, indications of family values, generally based on the kind of North Indian patriarchal extended family, but seen often as a kind of microcosm of society or the nation. And then the strong theme of the conflict between uh, in individual desire and um, a kind of a larger duty to, to the family or the social group. Um, in the remainder of my talk, I'm going to uh, draw on the work of a colleague of mine, Tejasmini Ganti, a uh, very fine um, anthropologist and scholar of film at New York University, 
And from the second edition of her um, guidebook to, as you can see, Bollywood, there's that, there's that word, um, that uh, came out in 2013. Um, Professor Gunty in this book presents a historical overview of Hindi cinema that she divides into four periods. And she's very careful to point out that this is not an absolute kind of uh, breakdown, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of films uh, over this span, and obviously they don't all fit in neatly into these um, eras and categories that she's created, but she finds this a useful way of looking at some of the major themes and especially some of the most popular films of each period. And I agree, and I'm going to use this um, in going through my, my kind of uh, brief history uh, today. Um, so let's begin with what she calls the Nehru Congress era, uh, which is the immediate post-independence period. Um, Jawaharlal Nehru was the first and longest serving prime minister. Um, and the films of the period are characterized by a kind of uh, optimism, a kind of enthusiasm for nation building. Um, and one of the very iconic and popular films of the period is Kapoor's, Raj Kapoor's Sri Chasso Bees, um, which I've translated the title as The Gentleman Crook, 1955. It's actually one of my personal favorite films of all time. Um, and I'm just going to show you a little clip from the very beginning of the film, what I call the establishing song, which is itself a convention in Hindi cinema, where the hero is introduced through a song, and a song that kind of gives us a glimpse of his persona as it's going to be presented in the film. Bombay for 20. Chal beta Japani. There's a lot I could say about this song, and I wish I could play the whole of it for you. Um, but um, suffice it to say that it introduces this uh, trademark Chaplin-like character that Kapoor had created. Um, 
and his composite identity, um, which is very much like the, the national identity that India is kind of striving to create with borrowing from here and there and taking, and yet with it still remaining Hindustani at the time. Um, by the way, this song was internationally popular um, in Russia, China, much of the Middle East and Africa, people were singing it all over and uh, Kapoor was a, became a superstar uh, for them as well. Um, despite some darker moments, um, the film largely projects the idealism and patriotism associated with the period um, when Nehru's Congress party won repeatedly in elections and had a quite strong mandate, you can see Panditji Nehru in the in the background of the scene in, in a poster on the wall, as uh, he, he uh, the uh, Raj Raju the hero is talking to um, Vidya uh, his his beloved played by Nargis. Um, another iconic film of the period, uh, with a woman as the central character, is Mehboob Khan's Mother India a massive rural epic with 12 songs, uh, often compared to the uh, American film Gone with the Wind. And again, starring Nargis, a woman who came out of a courtesan family background and became a, a tremendous star. And I would be amiss if I passed over the 1950s without mentioning another of my favorite directors, Gurudat and uh, a film that is unquestionably a masterpiece, Piazza of 1957. If you've never seen it, I, I strongly recommend it. And this is a film that really is in a much darker register and has a great deal of impl implied critique of the failures of the new nation and the failures of the political elite in delivering um, on the expectations uh, of the Indian people. Um, so it's a very interesting um, kind of contrast to Kapoor's more upbeat uh, vision. Um, certainly by the second period, what um, Gunti calls the crisis of the state, the euphoria and confidence of the early post-independence period had definitely worn off. There was growing disillusionment with government corruption, poverty, unemployment, um, and of course, in the middle of this, we have the emergency from uh, Indira Gandhi's uh, as assumption of dictatorial powers between 1975 and 77, and really the beginnings of the uh, erosion of the Congress party mandate. Um, it really begins to slip in popularity. And the, the most successful films of the period um, are epitomized by a series of films starring Amitabh Bachchan, often as a working class hero wronged by society and seeking revenge. Um, and the I iconic film I've picked for this is Diwar from 1975, just before the emergency begins, um, in which he plays Vijay, uh, a manual laborer turned gangster who becomes rich, but comes into conflict with his older brother Ravi, an upright policeman. Um, the film had very few songs. It was not a song-driven film, but it was renowned for its crisp and dramatic dialogue that was written by Salim Khan and Javed Akhtar, very um, popular duo of the period among screenwriters. 
uh, as in this scene in which the brothers meet after many years under a bridge where they lived on the pavement, on the footpath with their mother as children. famous lines in Hindi film history, epitomizing the mother-son bond and family values. But of course, does Officer Ravi really have her mother here, played by as, as she often was by Nirupama Roy at that time? Uh, we learn in time that the criminal son, Vijay, is really her favorite, just as he is ours in the audience even if the film's moral universe requires that he come to a violent end. Now, in 1991, the Indian economy began to be transformed from a semi-socialist to a neoliberal capitalist model to allow for more private investment, including by multinational corporations. And this was reflected in what Gunti calls the um, uh, the, well, liberalization and uh, consumer uh, tendency in films uh, reflected in opulent romantic films featuring upper, upper middle class characters on sets awash with glossy consumer goods. Uh, sometimes the hero and heroine even lived overseas as NRIs, um, as in the iconic DDLJ of 1995, 
which concerns a love affair between British resident Indians and is set half in the UK and Europe. And I'm gonna play just a very brief clip from this because I know everybody knows this song, I think. <laughs> देखा तो ये जाना सनम प्यार होता है दीवाना सनम तुझे देखा तो ये जाना सनम प्यार होता है दीवाना सनम अब यहाँ से कहाँ जाए हम तेरी बाहों में मर जाए हम The um, Chopra's lush romantic style, uh, including its kind of soft focus, uh, uh, misty romanticism, was much admired and much copied by other filmmakers and also parodied by other filmmakers, uh, as in a song sequence from uh, Dil Chata Hai in 2001. Um, but incidentally, the clip that I showed uh, exemplifies the convention of playback singing. Um, both actors are, of course, of course lip syncing, and the audience knows this and accepts this. And the singing voice of Kajal, who was 20 at that time, was being supplied by Lata Mangeshkar, who was 66 years old at the time, and had been doing vocals for heroines for more than 40 years. Uh, and was a superstar in her own right. Um, the post-liberalization era introduced a new kind of hero uh, in contrast to Amitabh Bachchan's angry young man of the 1970s. Um, it brought in what my colleague Corey Creepmore calls the happy old boy, um, a perpetual adolescent party animal with no deeper concerns than romance, clothes, and product placement. Uh, in a whole series of films. Um, finally, we come to um, Professor Gunty's fourth era that she calls global Bollywood. Uh, I don't think she's moved on to a fifth at this point, but maybe she has, I, I, I can't speak for her. Um, but it, it really carries through from about the year 2000 to the present, um, as I understand it. And um, as she writes, it's much more difficult to characterize. And this relates to what I said in the beginning about the complexity of the media landscape in India today, um, especially with all the different kinds of digital platforms that are now involved. Um, but we can point to some themes that have emerged, some trends in film production, such as the ones I've listed here, uh, corporatization of film production, high budgets and high production values with a lot of computer generated imagery, um, foreign investment and marketing. We see Netflix now having a big role in the Indian market. 
multiplexes um, and niche genres. I'll talk about that in a minute. And experimentation, including films without songs, of which there are quite a few, actually. Um, some of this reflects the influence of satellite TV and cable channels since the 1990s. Uh, the fact that people, viewers are exposed to a great variety of programming from all over the world. And they expect their own films to look more like this. It's given a more, so to say, world-class look to films. Um, and um, there's been a continued importance in representation of um, overseas diasporic communities of people from India, uh, as in uh, these two films, the first uh, 2003 film set in Manhattan, the second um, Dostana from 2008 set in Miami Beach. Um, there's been a revival of lavish historical films, which is, was a very small genre in Hindi cinema. It still is a small genre, but it's becoming, it's being explored more. And these are, of course, notable films by the Maharashtrian uh, director Ashutosh Gowarkar, um, both very excellent films, I think. Um, the advent of shopping mall multiplexes um, was a very important development because it allowed for a wider range of films. Uh, directors no longer had to worry about filling 3,000 seat picture palaces um, where they had to offer something for everybody in a single film. Uh, instead, they could experiment with films aimed at smaller, more targeted audiences and addressing sometimes pressing contemporary issues. These are sometimes referred to uh, by critics as hutke films, sort of offbeat films. Um, I would include in this category a film like Makbul, uh, an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth set in the Mumbai underworld. Uh, Peeply Live, a black comedy about rural debt, farmer suicides, and 24-7 news channels. And Toilet, Ek Prem Kata, which is a love story about, well, about sanitation. Um, there are genres that have been very little uh, explored before in Hindi cinema, such as sci-fi, um, now enhanced by uh, world-class uh, CGI, computer-generated images, which, by the way, are often outsourced by Hollywood studios to Indian companies in Bangalore and Hyderabad. Um, so that a lot of the Western CGI also comes from India in any case. Um, and we even find actress-centered films, uh, such as the excellent uh, 2012 suspense th thriller Kahani, starring Vidya Balan. Um, and a series of uh, kind of retrospective highly intertextual films about the history of Hindi cinema, perhaps best exemplified by the spectacular 2007 film Om Shanti Om, which notably was the first uh, giant hit uh, directed by a female director, Farah Khan. And of course, the fact that Farah Khan is also Muslim brings me to the final point I wanna to make today and the final note I would like to close on um, with particular relevance to today's sometimes polarized uh, political and uh, communal media climate in India. 
Um, and that is the fact that the, the film industry, um, the Hindi film industry in particular, but certainly the entire film industry in India has always been characterized by a tremendous amount of religious and ethnic diversity and collaboration right from the very beginning and up to the present day. Um, artists of all different communities working together um, very harmoniously to produce these, these wonderful films. Um, if we go back to the early Sunt films made by the Pune-based uh, studio Prabhat uh, in the 1930s and released in both Marathi and Hindi, such as Sant Tukaram, um, the, we, the, these films were all produced by a production team um, that had a Hindu and a Muslim as the directors. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Vishnupant Govind Damle and uh, Sheikh Fateh Lal. Um, and I would also cite the wildly imaginative films of Manmohan Desai in the 70s and early 80s. Um, with their multi-religious heroes, um, heroes who often sort of combined in their own identity or through, in this case, three brothers. And by the way, this is another one of my very favorite films and I've taught it many times, um, but they combine you know, three different religious communities. Um, or cutting to almost the present, um, 2019's uh, Gully Boy, about a Muslim from the Dharavi slum who becomes a rap music star and featuring real life Christian Muslim and Hindu hip hop artists. Um, its slogan, Apna Time Ayaga, as they say, went viral, uh, an expression of aspiration and, and moxie. And so to, to, and to finish my remarks, I hope that the time for films that explicitly reject communalism and acknowledge the religious diversity of both the film industry and the nation of India will continue to Ayaga to come for us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Lepkindov. I was chuckling all the time, but I kept my microphone on mute, so I didn't want to interfere. Loved your presentation, even though many films and many uh, uh, things we have enjoyed so many times, but coming from you gives it a unique flavor. And I just loved your talk as always, like your articles. Also. I have tons of questions, but I would like to invite audience or participants to join and ask their question. They can type their questions in the chat window or the Q&A win uh, window, or they can, yeah, I think those are the two ways they can ask questions from probably the senior most scholar of Indian films and Hindi language in America, recently retired, but uh, we loved his insight. I always love his insights. Any questions, audience, please? Audience are <laughs> still trying to digest, I guess. But I would like to, if you permit, sir, I would like to ask you a question. You're free, yes. <laughs> uh, you referred to the darshan aspect of the film, uh, of the Indian films, not just Hindi, but Indian films. And you referred to your article, which is my all-time favorite, is there an Indian way of filmmaking? Uh, would you please share with us about other senses? You refer to eyes, but also the ears and the touch. And if you could elaborate a little bit, that was, those were well, great insights. 
in in that article, and I, I you know, I'm not going to go through the whole article. Um, it's it's available online, so anyone who's interested can find it easily. Uh, is there an Indian way of filmmaking? Um, uh, but um, I do I do talk about the different senses, and um, for sound, of course, I talk about the the verbal dimension and the musical dimension of of cinema and how important that is. And I think it's a, it's a little bit of a different take on why there is so much music yeah. uh, and poetry and dance um, in, in films. And um, yeah, I mean, I tie it up to some wider cultural conventions about um, uh, verbal art and, and verbal performance. Um, don't really know what else to say about that. Uh, Katha, I think you refer to Katha Sagar and the storytelling. I, that's right, I do. I do. Yeah. I refer to conventions. Well, the, the, the very strongly oral component yes. of the epic. I mean, for example, the Tulsidas epic, which I am translating, um, you know, is almost never read <laughs> silently uh, in the way that people read novels, you know, or books today. It's almost always chanted and sung. Uh, I actually chant it while I work on it, while I translate it, um, because that's just such an important dimension. Uh, it's, a, it's a somatic dimension. The, 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 um, the text goes into your body and is part of your physical uh, being. And of course, the popularity of Hindi film songs, the fact that people know them so often by heart because they've heard them on the radio or they've heard them um, on, in various... Uh, nowadays, you know, on YouTube and various uh, digital streaming platforms, um, they become part of one's life as poetry does. It gets internalized. So I think you do, are getting some questions. Yes, yes. There are two some... great questions already. From okay, one let's... from Professor Hannah Kim in New Jersey. I think we all know her very well. Anthropologist, yeah. senior anthropologist. So the question is, good morning, Professor Lutgender from New York City. How about a light question? How do you feel about the movement in the newer genres away from music dance, away from music and dance? Yeah, well, again, I don't really feel, I, I appreciate that question, Professor Kim. I don't really feel qualified uh, to speak about that because I haven't kept up. Um, I haven't seen uh, that many of the newer films or even the Hutke films, you know. Um, I think it's good. I think it's healthy. I think the experimentation that's going on today is important. And um, people are moving away from these giant films that have six or seven songs and, and are expected to fill enormous uh, theaters. Um, so I, you know, I don't, um, you know, there are certain films that are quite quite excellent and I, I think this is going to continue this kind of experimentation. Um, a film like Kahani for example which I have actually taught several times and watched many times and which I did um, include in the in the uh, PowerPoint um, you know it has songs it has three songs I think three or four songs but they're um, they're non-diegetic uh, in in the terminology of film scholars. That is to say, they're not part of the storyline. They're not sung by anybody within the picture. 
within the frame. They're, they're heard on the soundtrack, their background music, which is, of course, the convention in Hollywood. Hollywood films are almost all musical as well. They have lots of music in them, but it's not directly in the story. It's sort of like being heard in our minds. It's a kind of commentary on the story. That's the convention in American cinema. And it's being used increasingly um, in Indian cinema. And, you know, that's fine. It's, it's what directors want to do and it's what audiences want. And it can be done creatively as well. Um, but I, I personally do still like films in which the hero and heroines burst into song. <laughs> villains, villains, by the way, almost never sing, right, in Hindi cinema. That's one of the conventions. Bad There's people. So many don't. more questions, Philip. Bad people don't sing. Let's let's get some more questions. Right, right. So many questions. One is from my colleague right here. Thank you, Professor, for your wonderful talk. Professor Amit Anurag in philosophy has asked this question. Thank you, Professor, for your wonderful talk. In your talk, you linked Indian cinematography with Indian darshan. Do you think it is a correlation or darshan and cinematography share a causal relation? Do you think it is a correlation or darshan and cinematography share a causal relation? Uh, I would say it's, well, I would say it's more of the, a correlation. Um, well, no, both. I mean, um, I, I didn't go into today the, the sort of genealogy of Hindi cinema beyond mentioning photography. And, and if we look at um, uh, some of the early, you know, the Parsi theater is very important. Um, in understanding the, the genealogy of the early cinema. Um, and the Parsi theater is an operatic um, theater that takes its storylines from both epics and Puranas, but also the um, Indo-Islamic Dastan tradition of epic storytelling, the, the Indo-Persian uh, tradition and Urdu. Um, and... Um, in all of these genres, there's a great deal of emphasis on uh, eye contact and on uh, the use of the eyes. And um, so I, I, I don't mean to, I don't wanna beat it over the head too much. I'm not trying to make an essentialization and say that you know all Indian cinema is obsessed with, with the eyes or anything like that. But, but certainly in Western scholarship, the notion of the gaze um, a very particular gendered uh, notion of the gaze, which is often interpreted in psychoanalytic terms and assumes uh, a, a largely male audience. Uh, that's a very important uh, aspect of film theory in the West, but I think in, it's important in India to realize that there's a different notion of gaze and of what eye contact uh, implies and does. Um, so that's why I brought up Darshan. Okay, let's go to the next question, uh, Philipji. Thank. Uh, this is from an anonymous attendee, so I don't know the name. Question is: Thank you for the insightful session. Can you comment on the changing register from Urdu Hindustani to Hindi in film music? For example, ye, ye mumo ke dhage or havan karenge demonstrate a Sanskritized Hindi register than the earlier Urdu Hindustani register. So, question on language. Yeah. Um... Again, I don't know that I'm really qualified to talk about this because I don't know that I know, I probably don't know nearly as many film songs as the person who's asking this question does. <laughs> um, certainly the linguistic register is, has been changing. 
and is changing. And to some extent, it represents, unfortunately, the communalization of language. Um, the fact that, that Urdu is increasingly associated only with Muslims and Hindi only with Hindus, which was not the case in, in um, much of the 20th century. But I would say that the language of love still remains pretty heavily inflected by, by Urdu vocabulary of muhabbat and ishq. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and this is something that a number of scholars have written on. Um, there's a very strong uh, Urdu linguistic background to Hindi cinema. Um, and I don't think that the purging of it, the sort of what you could call um, uh, ethnic cleansing um, of language, which has happened really in Pakistan uh, very strongly, uh, cleansing the language of Sanskritic elements. Thank God, Bhagwan Kikrapase, it hasn't happened as much in, in India, even now. But I don't, I, I'm not um, denying that there may be a trend in that direction. And I suspect that the person who asked that question would have good evidence to support their, their position. And I, I just am not that knowledgeable. All right, let's go to the next question by Sri Padma Holt. I love listening to every word of Philip G's, Philip's presentation. Thanks for the talk, Philip, and thanks to Pankaj Jain. I'm wondering whether Philip has taken into account of non-Hindi movies into his analysis. Thank you. Very little uh, because of my own linguistic limitations. I mean, I'm a, I was a Hindi teacher and Hindi is what I can manage with. Um, so, I mean, I have seen other films. I have seen some Tamil films and um, of course, Bengali films, Maharashtrian, uh, Marathi films. Um, and, uh, but uh, there's only one or two non-Hindi films on my website because that's what, I, that's what I specialized in and that's what I wanted to call attention to. Um, and also when I, when I started writing about Hindi cinema, um, films in other languages were mainly not available on DVDs. Uh, or they were not available with good English subtitles, which I would need for those languages, and especially if I wanted to share them with students. Um, so there just wasn't the same um, access. And that may be changing now. Uh, Tamil is getting more sophisticated. You can see more films, you can get them with good subtitles. But again, you know, it's hard to keep up with all this. I mean, there's thousands of films all the time, you know, and I, I do other things, you know, <laughs> so. We all try but, to do um, other things. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for a good question. And of course, I'm always careful to point out to students and, and audiences that the Hindi cinema is only one of, of many uh, cinemas in, in India and, okay. you know, strong cinemas with long traditions, yeah. Let's go to the next, so many questions. So let's go to the next one by Eileen Blaney. The question is, are there any films in particular that your students have responded most to? <laughs> Which were the students' favorite films? Yeah, um, well, when I taught this survey course, you know, it was, it was a semester, so it was 15 weeks and we would do a film a week. Um, and we would have in those days, um, public screenings 
that the students were expected to attend in the evening, but we also invited the general community to come in. And I think you may have come to some of them, uh, Professor Jane. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, would, I, I picked films that I thought people were going to like, and generally they did. And generally they responded very, very strongly and very positively. But I will tell you one, one interesting little anecdote. I taught a course at one point called India Through Film, which was intended to be a kind of an introductory civilization course. But again, it used films and it used a film a week. And um, I started out with a big uh, blockbuster uh, Bollywood film. Actually, it was uh, Farah Khan's first film. Uh, what was it with Shah Rukh? Mehuna, uh, Mehuna. yeah, it was Mehuna, which, um, I, I, I chose for various reasons, um, but the second film I, I went to was um, uh, Piazza by Gurdat. And that was a kind of culture shock for my students. Um, and it was a culture shock, not just um, cinematically, but, but sort of technologically as well. I, a number of the students, we, we had a blog that the students had to write, write in each week. And some of the students wrote that it was the first black and white film they had ever seen. Now these are, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds. I was shocked. I mean, that means that they had never seen some of the greatest Hollywood movies, you know, um, pre-color uh, cinema. And, and so, you know, the students wrote things like, you know, oh, I was kind of put off in the beginning by the fact that it was in black and white, but wow, they were really able to do some cool things with that. And, you know, and, and VK Murthy's legendary cinematography for that film um, really spoke to them. And it was interesting. There were 15, I think there were about, no, I think there were only about 13 students in the class. For the final assignment, which was a, a paper, three of them wrote on Piazza. Um, three, you know, so a quarter of the class roughly chose Piazza as the film they wanted to focus on. I mean, clearly it, it spoke to them very, very well. Incidentally, my colleague, uh, Corey Kriegmer has written about Piazza and he thinks it's one of the greatest films ever made anywhere, so. Kiabat, kiabat. Next question is from our colleague, my friend, my classmate, Michael Baltutis, who used to be my PhD uh, friend in those days. Hello, Philip G. So good to see you again. I enjoy your article on depictions of the Himalayas in Hindi film. What other regional conventions are common throughout Hindi film? Uh, <laughs> uh, he is, uh, thank you very much. Um, he's referring to an article I wrote called Sex in the yes, Snow, uh, which you can look up, which is about uh, these love scenes that, that switch to the Himalayas. Uh, like in the DDLJ, um, I didn't go far enough with Tujay Deka, Toye Jana Sanam, but it, it quickly switches to the Alps. And in fact, it ends with um, Shah Rukh and Kajal uh, rolling down a, a hill with sn in snow, you know, with her in a sari. Um, so anyway, um, the, the convention of moving love songs into an extra social, what I call an extra social space, a space outside of the normal confines of society and so societal expectations, 
is a very important um, device in a cinema that's very conscious of um, social categories, family, um, family values, a kind of a certain uh, a strict notion of certain kinds of dharma. And you need to get the lovers out of that in order to fully express and explore their, their passion. Um, so that's certainly one of the conventions and the mountains have often been used for that. And I, I happen to love mountains myself. I'm speaking to you from um, basically a hill station in Colorado right now, which is, I'm fortunate enough to have a second home here. Um, so I mean, that, that intrigued me and that's something I wrote about. Um, other uh, kind of regions. I think we can mention about desert, right? The Rajasthani desert. Well, the desert for cer certainly, yeah. Um, a, a film that I like very much and that I've written about is Dilse, uh, Mani, Mani Ratnam's film from uh, around 2001, I think. Yes. Uh, I, I sometimes have started courses with that film mm -hmm. because it's such a shock to students. Yes. You know, a musical about terrorism, right? It's and like, suicide like bombing, right? Um, you know, and it's a, in its own way, it's a Hatke film, um, although it was quite mainstream and it has that wonderful soundtrack by, yes. by Rea Rahman. Um, but one of the things that I find very interesting about that film, and if you look at my notes on it on the, on the website, you'll see, is the way that the, um, the songs take us on a kind of tour of India, uh, of, of the whole country, um, expressing different kind of moods and, and um, emotions uh, through this very beautiful cinematography. Um, but also critiquing as the film does the whole idea of the nation and the, the treatment of especially peripheral areas and minority populations. Um, you know, building towards its very explosive and disturbing uh, conclusion. So um, that would be uh, another use of different kinds of uh, regional tropes in, in film. It's a great, great insight. Of course, there are also, and Hindi cinema abounds in unpleasant regional stereotypes, which I didn't go into, uh, <laughs> especially, you know, films of the 50s to 70s, uh, the way they characterize Madrasis, right? <laughs> South, South Indians, um, often, not always, but often. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next one by Sanil Amen. Thank you, Professor Philip. If, if I may, for your interesting lecture, kindly share your understanding on economic transitions and culture in Indian popular cinema. Sanil M. Nilkandan. I, I talked about that a little bit in bringing in um, Professor Gunty's um, notion of what happens to cinema after 1991, after the so-called liberalization of the Indian economy um, and the rise of a, of a increasingly um, uh, powerful and increasingly large middle class, especially urban middle class. Um, so, um, I'm not sure what else I can really say about that. I mean, budgets, of course, have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger uh, for films. But on the other hand, um, the use of digital effects now has kind of leveled the playing field a bit in that, um, you know, directors can do all kinds of amazing things without having to actually build necessarily the giant sets and, and 
bring in thousands of extras. I mean, if you look at the the um, the battle scenes in Joda Akbar, for example, um, you know, they're world class um, CGI uh, uh, battlefield scenes that look quite amazing. Uh, of course, that was a it was a big budget film. Um, so anyway, I, I, I don't really know quite what to say about that. I mean, the economics of the film industry, um, actually, Professor Gunty has written uh, very eloquently and, and uh, in great detail about this in another book that she did, which is about the ethnography of Bombay cinema and how oh. films are made. And, you know, film financing has always been basically a nightmare um, <laughs> in India. But one of, one of the things that, that happened in the 1990s, and it happened, I must say, under the BJP, uh, was the recognition of film as a legitimate industry. Uh, because right from the Nehru era, there was a distrust of cinema and a treatment of cinema as being basically a vice, being in, in the vice sector of the economy, along with gambling and liquor and prostitution. <laughs> and... Um, and 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 um, film film directors had to go generally to black money mm -hmm. in order to get funds to finance their films, and that changed in the in the nineties. Mm -hmm. So that cinema is now recognized as a legitimate industry. You often have banks being credited in the in the credits of films um, as providing finance, and that has has made it um, maybe a little bit easier. For, for directors to raise money to, to put films together. And that has encouraged more uh, variety and experimentation. All right, next question is from Kimberly Nundorf. Can you comment on the potential utility of Bollywood films in maintaining cultural or national identity among diasporic South Asians? Well, I mean, uh, many people have written about this and uh, there's certainly, it's a very good question and it's a very important um, theme. Um, I, I, I think the one, the, the immediate example that leaps to mind is um, which, I, um, which I featured in a, in a slide in my PowerPoint uh, from 1994, um, which is a film that has basically become a kind of script for how to do a wedding you know, how to do a Hindu wedding. And, um, and I, I recently heard about um, a, a couple that's getting married. The boy is uh, Anglo-American and the girl is from um, Nagaland. Girl is from Nagaland. It's an international wedding with uh, families from all over. Um, but they're basically, but it's got, you know, a Sangeet and it's got um, a lady Sangeet and it's, it's, it's structured very much like the paradigmatic wedding that we're presented with in Hamap uh, Um And that has become a model for um, communities all over the world in, you know, planning elaborate uh, nuptials. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the films have been made, they've never, I, I don't think a film has ever been made that's aimed entirely at the diasporic audience, but the success of films in the diasporic community has certainly um, not been lost on filmmakers and they, they, they do generate income there. Um, was it, um, 
not Kalho Naho, Kabi Kushi Kabigam. Kabi Kushi Kabigam, you know, opened in the United States at basically at the same time that it opened in India. And it opened in um, large urban areas where there were large uh, Indo-American communities. And there was usually one or two uh, multiplex theaters that showed Hindi films. And um, the, the people in Hollywood got a shock because it opened as like the number three or number four film of that week in terms of the box office earnings. And, you know, uh, the people that edited the, 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 uh, the weekly report on films were like, what the hell is this? They'd never, you know, a film they'd never heard of, you know, in a language they'd never heard of by directors they'd never heard of. And it's grossing, you know, it's in the top 10 grossing films in the United States. So that, that has happened a, a number of times and um, it reflects the power of the uh, diaspora community. Yeah. Oh, there's a question by Professor Tejasani Kanti whom you refer to so extensively. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, hi, Phil, Tejasvini here. <clears throat> Thank you for referencing my work. A quick comment, comment about the Hindi-Urdu question. Contemporary lyricists and screenwriters are now play, paying attention to register and region, much more so the songs that were mentioned are referencing particular social linguistic milieus. There is still Urdu thing, Adil, uh, Hemushkil, or Bulaya, including Punjabi, and many of the songs from Rockstar and many more. So there is, like yeah. you said, Urdu is continuing. And that goes yeah. On. I, I very much appreciate that. And um, um, Professor Gunty knows that I am a big fan of her work, uh, as I think will have become clear from my talk today. And I really appreciate that, that input and, you know, corrective, really. Yeah. Okay. And she's, uh, a question she's by, equipped to, to say that. By Colin McEvoy. Question, do you think the availability of Hindi Indian films and shows on streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime could lead to increased attention among American Western viewers in the same way that South Korean films like Parasite and shows like Squid Game have broken through to American viewers? Or do you believe Bollywood is too different from America, for American taste conventions for such breakthroughs to occur? That's a great question. Um, I, I certainly think that the availability of the films on Netflix is going to expose more people to them. You know, because people, people are hunting around, they're looking for something different to watch. And um, I, people are likely to try, um, you know, perhaps a Hindi film. That said, um, yeah, Hindi films do present some barriers uh, to, to novice uh, non-Indian non background viewers. Um, but it's been interesting to me, right from the beginning of my work on Hindi cinema, I've gotten enthusiastic feedback from people, the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places. Somebody in you know, Kansas, uh, an Anglo, a Gora Admi in Kansas writes to me, because he's been to my website and he's an incredibly passionate uh, viewer of Hindi films and very knowledgeable and, and, and writes to me and says, why haven't you written about X, Y, and Z film? You know, um, and there, there are pockets, you know, here and there. And I mean, uh, the, the presence of um, diaspora cinemas in major cities has, has already led to uh, people bringing their 
their non-Indian friends uh, along to screenings and people get exposed and they become sometimes very interested and very passionate. Um, so, but there has never, uh, at the same time as the questioner noted, there has never been a real crossover hit, um, as was the case, for example, with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, the Chinese film. Um, even Lagan, which, which did get some, some viewing in, in uh, big cinemas in, in the US, um, but it never really, I mean, you know, it's a four hour movie about cricket, right? I mean, that's a, that's a little bit of a tough sell to an American audience, despite the fact that it's such an amazing film and so expertly paced and, and has such great music. Um, but there's never been a, you know, a real sort of super hit so far. Um, it would be nice to see that, although I don't think that that's the criteria by which we should judge uh, the success of, of Hindi cinema internationally. There, there, you know, Hindi cinema has been uh, mega successful in some other countries. And um, incidentally, I just want to mention here, Raj Kapoor was um, Chairman Mao's favorite actor. And... Um, uh, Abara was basically required viewing uh, the 1951 amazing uh, film, 1951 by Raj Kapoor, was basically required viewing by all Chinese citizens during the Cultural Revolution. And um, I found that my middle-aged uh, Chinese language uh, teaching colleagues at the University of Iowa could all sing the songs from Abara, <laughs> even though they didn't know what they meant. They didn't know Hindi, but they had been exposed to them growing up during the Cultural Revolution. I mean, it was that uh, widely yeah. screened. And, and that's true probably for also for the erstwhile USSR, where for the big hit, right? Russia. Right. Okay, next question is from Piyush Roy. Good morning, Dr. Lutkin Ralph. After an, after an Indian way of filmmaking, is it time to explore? about an Indian way of film thinking, especially in the context of audience expectation, essentialization of the Indian cinema, Bollywood experience, both inside and outside India. Critic filmmaker, Professor Piyush Roy from RV University, Bangalore. Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And Professor Roy, I think you should, you should write that, <laughs> that essay or, or that book. Um, there, there have been, um, a number of um, studies that have come out that, if I can say so myself, they have been influenced by my essay. And um, there is a book that, unfortunately, I don't have the, the information about it right here, um, that just recently came out in India um, by, um, oh gosh, he's a, a South Indian critic, Raghavendra. Um, which, which explores um, aesthetic categories in Indian cinema using some of the ideas that I put forth in that essay. And um, the author wrote to me and asked if he could dedicate the book to me. And I was kind of shocked. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, uh, you know, I, no, no uh, scholarship is ever the last word. And um, I certainly hope that other people will, will go forward and, and contradict me and 
correct me and bringing me up to date and, you know, bring in their own perspectives. I, and, and he raised a number of points that sound very interesting for further exploration. All right. Uh, probably, I, probably not by me. Okay. Uh, a couple of more questions. I, thought, I, know, I know we have taken a lot of your time, but thank you for patiently responding. I think people are just let's, bursting. Let's, do, let's do another uh, five, 10 minutes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, the next, is, next I'll take from a student from Via Punappa. Hello, sir. I'm a theater student, and I'd like to know if you have any comments, resources on the aspects of Indian theaters, theater that have influenced Indian cinema. Well, I mentioned a few. Thank you. That's a good question. And um, I, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, Nortank, the folk theaters, Nortanki and Tamasha and Jatra in Bengal. Um, Ram Leela, of course, we can point to in the, in the Hindi uh, hinterland. Um, the, I mean, again, I'm not qualified to talk about the current state of Indian theater, which... Um, again, is open to all kinds of influences. And as you, as I'm sure um, this, the student knows, um, you know, starting in the 1980s, there was a strong movement in, in certain um, Indian theater circles to introduce more folk elements into the um, mainstream, you know, urban proscenium arch theater um, using, and so in using more music and dance and more traditional kinds of aesthetics um, thinking of some of the, the work of Girish Karnad, who was a dear friend of mine and, and kind of mentor of me, um, but also um, Tendulkar in Marathi and other, other playwrights who really borrowed elements from folk theater to, to um, create a new kind of uh, urban theater. Um, so I don't really have much else to say about that, but it's again, it's a very good topic and a very good question. Um, and um, theater has been influenced by cinema, you know, right from the beginning of cinema, from cinema's popularity and vice versa. Um, so I expect that that will continue as well. That's a great one. I, I had missed out that even theater has been influenced by film. I was thinking of the Nati Sangeet, Maharashtra Nati Sangeet influenced right. film, Parsi theater influencing film. But the other way also has happened. So thank you. I see, a, I see a comment from Professor Gunti, which I yes. think he probably right. Yes, yes. New York Times started to consistently review uh, Hindi films from the early 2000s, right? And sometimes with very good reviews. Um, I mean, I don't mean positive, but I mean very insightful, analytical, uh, very analytical, critically sharp reviews um, done by. Uh, people who knew who knew what they were talking about and knew the cinema. Um, uh, so yeah, that's that's I think been that pretty much. Uh, I think we can conclude here. There are some tiny information or comments. Uh, there are more, but I think in the interest of time, uh, probably we can stop here. Uh, or if you would like me to read, I can read. I, I see somebody has brought up uh, has has raised the banner for Telugu cinema, and <laughs> yes, um, I'm glad. I'm glad to see that again. It's yes. an it's a huge cinema. Yes. Um, it's some years it's bigger. There are more releases in Telugu than in Hindi, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know again it's it's a lesser known cinema, mm -hmm. unfortunately that deserves to be much better known. And yes, of course, there's a big Telugu um, 
language community in in the U.S. and elsewhere yes. in the Indian diaspora, and they do um, have Telugu films released almost simultaneously. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think then Professor Kim mentioned a long comment here uh, on her article on Swaminarayan, I think, and then uh, the New York Times uh, question was raised by, I think, Professor Kim that Professor Kenty responded already. Uh, okay. That's it, I think. Uh, and everybody's thanking you. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I, I, thank, I thank everybody for attending and, um, and for asking these very good questions. And uh, yeah, I, it's, it's been a pleasure. And it's, it's morning here. I'm having my chai. But I, I think I'm going to move on to breakfast. So, um, and I'll let you uh, maybe have dinner or whatever. Yes. And, <laughs> and uh, I do hope, um, I sincerely hope that everyone stays healthy and that it becomes possible uh, and comfortable for many of us to come back to India again. And I very much, Pune is one of my favorite places to go. And I very much hope to come again and perhaps I can visit um, Flame next most time. Of course, most so, yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you all. Everybody. Namaste. And Thank you. Namaskar. Good night. Good night.